First of all. Our scripture text this morning is Job chapter 23. Last time we started this chapter, so this is part two of Job chapter 23. In chapter 22, Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, has just given his third speech, and so Job in chapter 23 is responding to Eliphaz, so this is Job's third reply to Eliphaz, and this reply goes into chapter 24, which we'll be considering next, but this morning uh, we will continue to be in Job 23, so hear God's word as I read Job 23. Then Job answered and said, today also my complaint is bitter, my hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I've kept his way and have not turned aside. I've not departed from the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Therefore I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. Sometimes we have to just trust the process, even though we would like to have control and to know exactly what is happening next. When your health is on the line and you are seeing doctors, there is a process, and often all you can do is go along for the ride. It's up to the doctor in front of you at the moment to decide if he can help and what he is willing to do. And if he's not the one to help you, there will, be, there will need to be a referral, otherwise the process will stall. And if there is a referral given, you will be at the mercy of the next doctor's schedule when you can get in. And not only do you have little to say about the schedule, you also have little to say about the treatment itself, and really nothing to say about what will end up happening in the end. Will the treatments work? Will my, what will my health be like in the future? Will it be better? Will it be worse? Will it be the same? When your retirement finances are on the line and you are seeing a financial advisor about plans for the future, you have little control, little to no control over what you will have at retirement. Maybe the markets will crash. Maybe the housing market will collapse. Maybe you will struggle at some point with employment due to a disability or some other reason. Maybe this, maybe that. And you would certainly like to be able to know what your financial state will be like in the future. And you can plan, and you should plan, but you can't control, and you ultimately will not know what will happen. For those of us with children, we would like to be able to control their futures. 
and in that way to know what their futures will hold. And as they approach and enter adulthood, we would like to know that they would be able to find a career that they will enjoy, that will meet their financial needs. We would like to know that one day they will uh, marry and have a wonderful spouse and will have a great life together. And above all, we would like to know that as the years go by, they will be following the Lord with greater and greater zeal. Oh, to have control. Oh, to know the future. We think that if only we could know what will happen, we could be at peace and free of anxiety. But I would ask, oh, really? For what makes you think that the future is going to be all rosy? Has your life so far been only a series of one pleasant event after another? Well, of course not. And for us to know the future would probably only add to the difficulty of our perseverance as we follow the Lord. What if you were to find out that in the future, all of your doctor visits that have gone on for years are going to end up being in vain as your disease progresses? What if you were to find out that you were going to have financial struggles in retirement due to unforeseen circumstances? What if you were to find out all of the struggles that your children are going to, going to have and that you will share with them? Would you want to move forward knowing that not everything is going to turn out as you had hoped? Would you not be paralyzed in the present? Or if not paralyzed, caught in the vortex of doing the opposite of desperately trying to manipulate the future with the hope of controlling the outcome. God in his wisdom does not let us know the future except in broad lines. Like we see in the words of Job in verse 10 where he says, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. We can know that. We can know that we will come out as gold. We can be sure that for those who love God, he works all things together for our good. But God has not promised a life of ease. And Job has been obsessed with the desire to understand what God is doing in his life. He wants to hear God's explanation as to why he would take away Job's family and his wealth and his health. And what is especially perplexing to Job and is at the heart of his struggle is how this could happen to him when he is a righteous man by faith, a man who has taken God's word seriously and consequently has lived a holy life. And not to earn salvation, but as a person of faith who has lived out a holy life in thankfulness to the God he loves. There is a question, a question of to what degree Job is crossing the boundary, or is he crossing the boundary of what is proper in this desire to have a meeting with God? Is Job simply wanting to have God confirm to him that he is righteous, that he is indeed justified in the sight of God? Or is Job wanting more than that? If Job is only wanting confirmation that he is a saved sinner, we have reason to believe that he is engaged in a very legitimate and even proper inquiry. For it is clear in God's word that God wants us as his people to know that we are loved and that we are saved, that we have a salvation that is very real as we humbly seek God um, in faith. For example, one of the great works of the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 8, 16, is to bear witness or to testify with our spirit that we are children of God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Apostle John tells us in his first epistle, 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 2 Peter 1, 10 tells us that we are to confirm 
our calling and election. It's also part of God's work of giving us assurance of our salvation that the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are given to us as signs and seals of the righteousness that is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. It's clear that God doesn't want to keep us in the dark concerning our status with him. And the message of the gospel is clear that, is, that if you receive Christ as your Savior by trusting in his saving work on your behalf, you are a forgiven child of God, and you can never again be separated from God. For Job to want confirmation that he is indeed a saved, justified, forgiven child of God seems reasonable. At the same time, it could be argued that Job is already convinced, fully convinced, that he's righteous by faith, and in fact, it's his strong faith and his insistence that he is justified that compels him here to boldly seek time in court with God, explains why he knows, as he says, he will be acquitted. This leads us to wonder if Job is seeking something more, namely an actual explanation from God why he has treated Job as he has. So Ronald Hanko, in his commentary, um, he thinks that Job is going beyond simply just wanting to have a confirmation of a salvation, and he criticizes Job for expecting God to answer his questions, and he writes this. Job is so foolish as to think that he will find help and comfort in having God answer, answer his insistent why. He does not expect God to justify himself, but foolishly thinks if God will only explain, then he, Job, will be strengthened. Job does not understand that God owes no one an explanation of his ways. This is the great lesson of his trials. Indeed, to expect an explanation is an offense against the majesty and sovereignty of God. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Romans 9.20 The context is different in Romans, but the word of God there is apropos to Job's situation and to all God's ways with us. We too, when we question God's ways and think we cannot be at peace unless he explains himself to us, will find him a God who hides himself. He is there always to sympathize, to help, to soothe, but he will not be there to stand prisoner at the bar of our questions and to be judged by us, end quote. Well, based on God's response, which is going to come to Job in, in future chapters, it's evident that Job doesn't always have the right perspective and the right attitude toward God. But I'm not ready to say that that's happening here in chapter 23. I think that basically Job is wanting God to assure him of salvation, though, of course, naturally, if God were to do that, that would be the grounds that Job would use for questioning God's ways with him. So even if Job is not currently questioning God, it does seem that questioning God is the main motive behind this desiring a meeting with God. But I think there are some nuances here to what Job wants that need explanation. We know Job is quite sure that if he has a meeting with God, he would be acquitted. He's quite sure that he has done everything that God requires in order to have an intimate, personal relationship with God. He's not questioning that he has faith and what he should expect from God because of it. Last time I pointed out Job's growing faith, in fact, that is manifesting itself in a growing confidence to stand before God. Now, last time I didn't explain verses 11 and 12, 
But these also relate to Job's profession of faith. When he says, my foot has held fast to his steps, I have kept his way and have not turned aside, have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. And so Job is expressing the fact that he has taken his walk with the Lord seriously. And he directly contradicts Eliphaz, who has accused Job of all kinds of sins, including not receiving instruction from God's mouth. That's in chapter 22, verse 22. Job says that he has kept God's commandments and has treasured the words of God's mouth, in fact, more than food. By the way, what Job says here parallels what Jesus said in John 4 to his disciples, which is what we've been working through in our uh, evening messages, but in in John 4, Jesus says to his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Back in verse 7 of Job 23, Job indicated that he was upright. That's a term that mostly has to do with how one lives in relation to one's neighbor, and Job is insisting by saying he's upright that he is treating his neighbor in a way that's pleasing to God. And Job, because he is human with a nature that tends toward pride, yes, he could potentially be bringing up his obedience as a way to argue that he deserves better from God, but that's not the kind of man that Job has shown himself to be. He is righteous, the Bible says, which is not possible for someone who trusts in his own good works to save himself. Plus, God himself said that Job is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And that sounds like something that couldn't possibly be said about any sinful human being, and yet God said it. And this is what forces us to recognize Job to be a type of Christ, because Jesus, of course, never actually did sin. But no one knew of any sin in Job's life, and that allowed him to point to Jesus. But of course, a type is never the reality. It simply points to the reality, and so Job's holiness points us to Jesus, who was completely just, and yet, remember, who suffered nevertheless. He was completely holy and yet suffered. In some, there should be no doubt that Job was a sinner. He lacked perfection. But there should also be no doubt that he was a godly man who had committed himself to serving God out of gratitude and whose level of holiness makes it possible for him to be a type of the Lord Jesus. And Job tells us of his commitment to obedience in order to contradict his friends who have accused him of being a gross sinner and also as evidence that he's not just going through the motions, but he has a living faith with his God. And so Job's problem is not a lack of faith. It's not even weak faith. The problem is that God won't meet with him and explain what is happening. Job is confused by how what God is doing seems contrary to how he would treat a person of faith. Because he knows everything is in place for him to have an intimate, personal relationship with God, and yet that's not what he is experiencing. Job's faith allows him to hold out hope for the future, that what is happening is a test, and that eventually he will come out as gold. But it is in the period between now and then that the struggle exists. And I've chosen uh, for the wording uh, to describe this as Job's uncomfortableness. Job is being treated by God in a way that makes him feel like God has refused to have fellowship with him. We see in verses 8 through 10 that 
Job's uncomfortableness involves a sense of God's absence. Sense of God's absence. It's been suggested that Job is referring in these verses to the four points of a compass, forward and backward and left and right. And the idea is that no matter which direction Job goes and trying to find God's presence, God is not there. God hides himself. Job's desire is to know God's way with him. What is your plan goal, God? What is your end goal? What is going to happen? What purposes are you fulfilling in my life? See, Job's in the dark and he can't see God. He doesn't feel like God is near and yet at the same time he knows that God knows him. And the study of verse 10 confirms that the idea is probably this, but he, God, knows his way with me. But God knows his way with me. In other words, Job is sure that God sees him, knows what is happening to Job. Job is not for one second thinking that God is somehow, that God has somehow lost track of him and that things have been happening that God doesn't know about. We don't find Job at any time thinking he needs to inform God of what is happening as though God is ignorant of Job's circumstances. No, Job is sure God knows exactly what he has been doing in Job's life. And though he is sure that he will come out as gold, he is not sure why this would be planned for him as a covenant child of God who has clearly, by his life of obedience, shown that he loves God. I remind you that the covenant is about a relationship. It's about sinners responding to God's love by trusting in God and seeking to obey him. There's no salvation in the covenant for those who simply want God's blessings but don't want a relationship with God that requires faith and the love of obedience. Again, not that obedience saves. The way it works is that if you have put your faith in God's grace and are truly appreciative of God's love for you, you want to do good works, and you will do good works to express your love. It's no different than how in human relationships, those you love and appreciate you treat with love. It doesn't make sense to say that you have a relationship with a friend if you regularly mistreat that friend or even treat him lovingly, but the motive is only what you can get from him. But a true relationship involves reciprocating love. And so when God shows us love in salvation, the only appropriate response is to love him back. And what did Jesus say? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Job was living that out. And it was a struggle of faith to try and understand why God would be so hidden and unresponsive. It's hard for Job not to think that something must be wrong in their relationship. Verses 13 through 16 also have to do with Job's uncomfortableness. In particular, what Job highlights is God's sovereignty. And normally God's sovereignty is a source of comfort. But for Job, the sovereignty of God means God can't be controlled. And therefore, Job is terrified about what might happen next. Verse 13 is a declaration basically that God is one in some sense. It says in the ESV, but he is unchangeable. The Hebrew word there for unchangeable is really the same one found in Deuteronomy 6.4 where we read here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one. Um, Now, Job adds a preposition in front of the word one, and so some think that that only confirms the idea, but God is one. And the meaning 
then if we ex- accept that translation, could be as it is in Deuteronomy 6, the explanation would be God is uniquely one. There is only one true living God. There is no one besides him. And uh, that truth implies very clearly what Job goes on to say about God, namely that God can't be stopped as he carries out his holy will. Whatever he desires, he does. Others think that the idea of God being one is that he is one and the same in his conduct towards us, and hence unchangeable, which is why the ESV has that translation. And the idea would be not so much unchangeable in his nature, but in his ways. And uh, basically you end up with the same application in the end, that God's plan made in eternity does not change, and so we have no power to change it. And the result is that God does all his holy will. But others think that the idea of the preposition before the word one is to say that God persists in one thing. And so basically we are, it's another way of saying God is unchangeable in his plan because what Job is talking about in the context is God having a plan. And so the idea would be he is persisting in that plan and therefore no one is able to change it. In other words, there's no plan B for God. There's one plan and God sovereignly carries it out. And so even with the different nuances of translation, we still end up with basically the same thing being said about God, that he is sovereign over the affairs of men. Nothing can stand in his way. God will carry out his plan. And as the only God, he is capable of carrying out his will. And of course, no creature has the power to stop him. And so we have in verses 13 and 14 these words, but he is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. You see, it's this reality of God's sovereignty that terrifies Job. Verses 15 and 16, he states how the truth of God's sovereignty affects him. He says, therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint, the Almighty has terrified him. As we think about what is it that terrified Job, there are the normal things that we expect that would explain it, but in this case, things that we can eliminate. So for example, we expect sinners who have no assurance of their justification to be terrified. That would be perfectly normal for for sinners who who have no idea of, of the forgiveness of their sins in Christ to be terrified as they think of God's sovereignty to judge all men and to punish and bless as he pleases. But Job has just stated in verse 7 that he expects a meeting with God to result in his acquittal. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are consequently justified in the sight of God, you can expect a meeting with God to be void of terror. At the same time, we must expect that any meeting with God is going to be marked by a certain level of terror because of the awesomeness of God's holiness. Some have suggested that that's, that that's the reality with which Job is wrestling. So in a moment of faith, he, he's thinking about acquittal. But as he thinks about the reality of this meeting with our holy God, our creator, his boldness shrinks away into terror. That's certainly a reasonable idea. When Isaiah, in chapter 6 of his prophecy, he describes seeing the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, The angels crying out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. And then the Lord speaks, and the foundations of the thresholds shake. And what happens? Isaiah responds in terror, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And you can do a study, a survey of scripture. Every encounter with God and even encounters with God's angels have left human beings in terror. We expect that. Despite the holy life Job has lived, and even though justified in the sight of God by faith, that Job is right if he is expressing a certain amount of dread of being in God's presence. Christopher Ashe in his commentary explains, so Job longs for final vindication before God, and he is confident of final vindication before God, but this confidence is not a shallow or trite thing, for Job is also afraid. Job longs to stand before God face to face, verse 4, and yet he is also terrified at the prospect, verse 15. Job knows that God is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4.24. He is right. The hope of final justification before God is not a light or shallow hope. We will never breeze into God's presence to talk with him face to face. Always there will be awe in the presence of God, who is the one and only, utterly unlike us mortals, end quote. Without in any way taking away from this particular explanation for Job's sense of terror, I would point out that What is at the heart of Job's terror is the specific truth that flows out of God's sovereignty that Job expresses there in verse 14, where he says, God will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. I think the main thing that scares Job is the fact that God's plan may very well include many more ways of suffering. What has happened so far was appointed. Who was to say there isn't a whole lot more suffering that's been appointed? What if God's plans are for Job's suffering to continue on and on? Job is terrified because he knows God cannot be controlled. And if God has willed that Job continue to suffer as he has been doing, and perhaps even add to his suffering, if that is possible, there is nothing Job can do. Based on the fact that he doesn't understand why, has, why God has brought the suffering that he has already experienced, he has every reason to believe that it may very well continue. Now, Job, by faith, knows that when God has tried him, he shall come out as gold. He knows that one day the suffering will end, but it may be years down the road. And it may be that God plans to ramp up the level of suffering over that time. We just don't know. Have you ever realized what Job is realizing? Have you ever come to see that you are not in control of your life? And you may want to know what's going to happen. You may want to control your future, but it's God who is in charge. And he's not going to reveal your future to you. And perhaps it's terrifying to you to think about what may happen, what he may have planned for you or for your loved ones. It is true, we don't know what will happen but we do know what will happen in the end. And that is what makes the difference. Think of the Lord Jesus. He came to this earth knowing he would suffer. Imagine every day knowing that you were going to leave this life in the most gruesome, 
painful and terrifying way imaginable. Every day of his life, Christ was led closer to the day of his crucifixion, which involved physical torment, yes, horrible physical torment, but worst of all, the spiritual terror of being separated from God and the bearing of our sins. And every day, he knew that was coming. We might think he would be better off not knowing it was all coming. From our perspective, yes, that would be true. But he came for the purpose of dying. A key part of his obedience was his willingness to carry forward in obedience to God's will, even though God's will meant tremendous suffering. But part of what gave Christ perseverance was the knowledge that one day all of the suffering would end. One day the suffering would give way to joy because the suffering was for a purpose and the purpose was worth it for the purpose was the glory of God. In Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 3, those verses summarize the matter well. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Notice, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can see again and again in the types of the Old Testament Various people who pointed to the Lord Jesus, whether Moses or David, and now Job, we we see this pattern of people who suffered greatly, but then being raised to heights of glory. Now, we haven't come yet to Job's exaltation, but it's coming. And in this, he is a type of Christ who in his humiliation suffered greatly, but in the end was raised to glory. Job's faith is a struggling faith. It's a real faith, but it's an uncomfortable faith all the same. He rightly believes he will come out as gold. But it's the struggle in the meantime that is hard. God has it all planned. God doesn't back away from bringing suffering into our lives if it serves his purposes, and it does. That's what we have to latch on to. Our Savior suffered for our salvation. And Job's suffering is part of the Lord's work in his life for his good. And it's this vague hope that compels Job to not give up on God. He doesn't understand God's ways. He's not sure what God's ways will involve in terms of his suffering in the future. He's in the dark, as you and I are, about so many things in our lives. And yet Job says at the end here, I am not silenced because of the darkness. It's not silence. He continues to cry out to God. He continues to seek God. He's hoping and anticipating that God will come out of hiding and reveal that all is well. And knowing human nature, you would like to control God. But you are called to trust in him and to not give up in seeking him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that there are so many unknowns that we cannot control in our lives. You are in charge of these things, and we are at your mercy. So, Father, help us to trust in you. May we be persevering Christians, continuing to trust in you, submitting to your will for us, leaving the future to you, trusting that you have a glorious future for us, that you sent your Son 
to die on the cross to give us salvation, eternal life with you. Father, we pray that you would give us a greater, greater ability to trust in you despite what we don't know. May we leave the futures that we have in your hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.